we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures Podcast. You are here today with Yousef and I've got an amazing guest, Ariel Smallwell. Ariel, super excited to have you here. I think it's important for us to give a little background uh, of you. You are an attorney. I think it's, it's remarkable to have gotten a chance to know you over the last two years, I think now, um, and, and see the work that um, has been developed. And, and I want to get into the work, but I, I, I really do want to try to talk a bit about you first and what brought you to the work and, and welcome you to Afrofutures. So welcome to the Afrofutures podcast. Thank you for that introduction. Um, actually, it's only been a year that we've been working together, a testament to how fast <laughs> this time is flying <laughs> in the pandemic. Um, thank you so much for having me. I've thought a lot about the way that my growing up in the Bronx um, and then going to middle and high school in the suburbs of New York City, I thought about just the role that my brother's incarceration um, and going to various prisons across upstate New York had a role in just my politicalization, radicalization, if you will, my, my understanding of the issues and how I brought that to bear in the academy and then in the activism and organizing work that I did, um, both at the ACLU of New York and, and, and beyond. Um, and I, I just, I'm intrigued at how our lives have kind of in some respects bled into the work that we do. So I know you're from PG County, but if you if you want to just start where, where, where are you from and what, what was life like for a, for a young Ariel? Yes, I am originally from Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a suburb outside of Washington, D.C., born and raised here. And I think that definitely growing up in PG County was a huge part of radicalization for me. Um, it is a majority Black county and by some statistics, the richest Black county in the nation. Um, so you have the tale of two cities, you have this really, really incredible part where you have rich doctors and lawyers who are Black, and then you have the other side of it where there's an incredible amount of poverty um, in one county, and that creates a really big tension in terms of what the priorities of the counties are. Um, my high school was 99% Black, so when I went to university, I was talking about, you know, being in AP English and reading books like Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, books by Ralph Ellison, not Ralph Emerson and kind of the distinction that you get there and having teachers who are really focused on presenting Black works and Black art as not just, you know, something separate from the norm, but something that was meant to be celebrated in itself and that had value in itself. So that was a large part of how I started to see 
the work of Toni Morrison and the work of, you know, a lot of other Black artists that I go to college and people have not read these artists. And I'm just confused, like, how do you miss out on this incredible work? But I realized that my teachers knew that I would be going out into a world that did not value my Blackness, that did not recognize that my Blackness was not just something that was special, but specifically something that was not meant to be shared, not meant to be um, thought of as something that was positive. And so growing up in that environment, I just really became really sure of myself in my Blackness, in my Black womanhood. Um, but more importantly, it taught me that everywhere that I went was not going to be like the city that I was from. And so I think a lot about how I had the exposure to people who really use Blackness as, as an intellectual, in an in intellectual sense. Um, but the most important person I think who radicalized me was my grandfather. Um, he's 79 years old. I'm actually going to do an oral history with him later on today to really capture his um, experience. He grew up in New Orleans came to DC with his parents and he was the first person to teach me about Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and you know told me about what it was like growing up as a Black man in the South and really told me to question everything when people tell you something don't assume that what they're telling you is correct information how to use an encyclopedia I think we're all old enough that the encyclopedia is you know it was on the big shelf and you have to have every volume not just going to Google and so how to look up information how to find out what is a good source versus a bad source how to really sift through the noise um, and so I think that was really important for my radicalization to have these past um, accounts of what happened during the civil rights movement, the Harlem Renaissance, you know, pre <laughs> pre 1900s, um, and really just have the wealth of black knowledge at my hand so that I see myself not as just, you know, in a vacuum, but as really building on that black experience in a number of ways. No, there are a lot of points there that I thought, think are important, especially because we're in a moment in the country right now, where there is a significant pushback, backlash, white lash, whatever word you want to use to this idea of inappropriately, you know, anointed critical race theory, which again, even in, even when we're talking about this, there's this pushback of, we don't teach that. That's a bad thing, except critical race theory as a legal theory isn't a bad thing. It's actually something that's super important to actually understand how the country has continued to manifest the types of discriminatory practices and actions that they that they engage in. And so, but there is this pushback to the point that there are the there are banning of these books, right? They're banning of Toni Morrison's books right across the country. They're banning of books uh, from some of the authors that you that you referenced that you grew up just reading. And I, I'm always interested because I, I was fortunate enough to get that type of education, but it was supplementary to my secondary and primary education. It was because my mother was born in the 40s. It was because my oldest brother was born in the 60s and, you know, taught me these things. It was because I found a group, you know, in, in, in Rockland County in Spring Valley called the Sankofa Center that taught us these things. And I was able to get teachers that were Black teachers that in, introduced that into the curricula as a part of the curricula, not as substituted in the curricula. And I just... I. I think it's important for us to, to also be clear about when 
we say radicalized because I think I can certainly say this as a black person who's also Muslim, that that's a weaponized term that in this context, what we mean is that the awareness that we've been able to come to because of the types of engagements we've had because of the introduction to the curricula that we've been given has offered us a particular lens with which to engage the world and to understand the realities that create the social contract and the social constructs that we are existing in. And it's a radical departure from what is normative, not in the radicalist sense that violent or et cetera, but radical in the sense of really how everyone else is acculturated to understand the society that we exist in. But you talked about your grandfather and um, the, the value of, of oral histories and the value of telling those narratives. And what are some of the lessons that you've, you've raised some of them, but what are some of the lessons that have stuck with you? And when you, when you left PG County to go to university and then to law school, um, what did you, how did those kind of, how did you carry those with you, right? Like, where did you go to university? Did you go to an HBCU? Did you go to an HBCU law school? What, 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 how did those lessons prepare you for getting to the area that is a practicing attorney? I think one of the main lessons and something that I'm consistently refining is thinking about power who has it, who wants it, how does it manifest? And I did not go to an HBCU for either university or law school. Um, Possibly one of my greater regrets that I did not do that. I went to Duke for undergrad um, and then I went to UNC for law school. So before 2017, before I ended up in New York, I thought that I was going to do the bulk of my legal work in North Carolina, in the South, at a point where North Carolina was really um, trying to figure out its identity, whether or not, according to political maps, it was going to go red or blue. It was very much a purple state. There were a lot of um, changes that were happening in the legislature at that time. So I thought that the bulk of my work was going to be in North Carolina. And the question of power was really important in Southern states, you know, given its legacy and its history, which is much more publicized than um, I think in the Northern states. But one point that I do think about often in learning history and in education, and we talk about this when we train in the RJU, is the idea of propaganda and specifically white supremacist propaganda and how a lot of education systems and what we are educated to believe is propaganda based on either an incomplete telling of history or a specifically skewed history. And um, that was something that I felt like I already had a leg up on the people that I went to university and law school with, because I understood that the history that is mainstream and that is being taught to a majority of people in the United States is not the full history and broadening your lens and seeing that full history in the radicalizing way that it is really helps you understand that there are a lot of systems that come together. And in a, in a sense, it made me feel closer to 
my community in the terms of like my blackness, but also just the broader community of people who are trying to get by every day, realizing that this is not an individual level problem. This is a systemic problem. And to have those lessons to go into university and law school, already understanding how some of the systems come together to oppress really helped me tailor my education to see okay, this is what I want to learn more about. This is how I want to express myself. These are the things that I think are important to pull out of this education. Um, and university is definitely something that you, it is what you make it. And hopefully, I mean, I think that I did use it in the best way that I could, but those lessons about power and systems really were instrumental in me coming out of university and law school, understanding that this is where I want to be in the legal community. And this is how I want to use my law degree, understanding now that I have a certain amount of privilege and power as someone with a legal degree as a lawyer in the legal system. No, I think this is such a perfect segue to the broader conversation I want to have with you today, because it is this untelling of history, the accurate history um, and indeed, even in this moment that we're in again, this insistence on pushing back and even in fact, retelling history with a different narrative that brings us to the continuous problems that we have in this country that we have really refused to address. And I, I, we, we, we met because of, you know, the work um, post bail reform in New York State, um, but then kind of continuing the work um, in a campaign that's called 13th Forward, which is an offshoot of the Abolish Slavery Now Network. Um, and it's important for, I think, this part of the conversation for us to really get deep into the history as well as really the, the that particular string of work and how it relates to the systemic structural inequities, the kind of preservation of white supremacist policies that exists today. Uh, because the narrative that we tell ourselves of the Civil War, and in fact, the narrative that many Southern states tell about the Civil War is that it's the war of Northern aggression, right? Um, there is this sense that, you know, Southerners and the Southern states were just trying to get by and the, the mean Northeast um, took away their ability to kind of engage in an economic enterprise. And on the other side, there's a narrative that the North was the righteous side that was fighting for you know, this principled idea of, of abolition and that the North was really uh, pushing this, this concept of, of anti-racism, of anti white supremacy. And that's actually not factual. I think, I think it's the biggest lie. My mother is from Baltimore, where I, where I currently live. Um, and she came to New York in the 60s and said, you know, she kind of understood being from Maryland, even though Maryland is a border state and, and fought with the North in the Civil War, she understood um, racism more profoundly in New York than she ever did when she was in Maryland or even when she visited her relatives in the South. That it was explicit in the South, right, in that you knew your place and it had its issues and dehumanization. But in the North, it was so covert but it was so viscerally clear that you could feel it. And New York State, um, indeed, New York City, where I grew up, uh, was a state that attempted to even consider seceding. <laughs> New York City considered seceding 
so that it could continue to profit off of slavery. Uh, because though slavery was abolished in New York State, um, New York was profiting off of slavery. In fact, New York State's economy, uh, Wall Street, is built off of the foundations of both the slave trade as well as um, supporting and funding the trade of goods that were generated from human trafficking or from, from bondage. Um, and in the 1860s, at the end of the Civil War, um, I think explicitly Congress passed the 13th Amendment, which folks have become more aware of because of Ava DuVernay's films. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you ought to go see it on Netflix. Um, but on January 31st in 1865, and then ratified December 6th of 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was passed. And I just want to read um, sections one and sections two of the 13th Amendment, and then we can get into a conversation about the way that these issues still perpetuate themselves in New York State. Because, you know, we're taught that, again, um, that the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. And so section one says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment of crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And then Congress shall have power to enforce this article by, prop by appropriate le legislation. I think it's a second part, right? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. That is often left out of the conversation. And it's the part that I think is the most pertinent and important because this particular section of, 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 of that, this particular clause of that section has been weaponized to ensure that Afro-descended people are reinstituted into legalized slavery uh, and to justify their servitude, their involuntary servitude. And it looks very different across the country. In Louisiana, they had chain gangs. Um, and in New York State, they have um, you know, other forms of it. But involuntary servitude is very alive and well. And it's not just a Southern issue, it's also a Northern issue. That was a really long way to get to um, trying to understand the ways that this retelling and untelling of history prohibits us from actually beginning to engage in the work to undo the white supremacist institutionalization in our law and our policy. And I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on how this continues to manifest itself. Uh, yeah, in terms of the North versus the South, it is a huge, 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 untelling, deliberate, mistelling propaganda of the North were the benevolent people above the Mason-Dixon line who really were these fervent abolitionists and only wanted enslaved people to be free when we understand um, that that is absolutely not true. Um, to your point about Wall Street, you know, some of the first commodities that were traded on Wall Street were human beings and enslaved Africans. So the North has just as much stake in enslaved labor as the South did. And what that mistelling does is it opts people out of the narrative that the kind of the narrative of community it kind of lets people off the hook and say well I wasn't responsible for that my family is from the north so we didn't participate in that but what 
really is the truth is that we all participated in that as a nation, as a country, and that effect lasts to this day based on the way that we are propagandized. And if we don't all take a shared responsibility for what has happened in the United States, then we can never have a reckoning because if it's no one's fault, then it's no one's fault. And when you talk about accountability, when you talk about just, you know, the understanding of how people have been hurt, not just um, historically, but, you know, the genetic components of the trauma of being a descendant of an enslaved person, you know, all of those things just kind of get brushed to the side to say, that's not really important because I wasn't the perpetrator of that. It wasn't my fault. And that is a real disservice. As to the 13th Amendment, I think that one of the biggest shockers I think that people especially white people encounter when they get to law school is the 13th amendment because they have heard so much about the civil war and all of these great generals you know even in my history class we learned about all of the incredible battles that were fought in the civil war and you have this narrative of okay we triumphed we came we overcame evil we freed the slaves and that is that you know that's the end of history and that's not the end of history because the 13th amendment and specifically the exception to the 13th amendment has led to an incredible still oppression of black people today through the prison system. Um, I think maybe two or three days ago, the state of Louisiana said that they would pardon Homer Plessy of the famed Plessy versus Ferguson case. Um, and I read a thread on Twitter about how, you know, we as a nation are trying to right these historical wrongs by pardoning historical figures while Louisiana continues to incarcerate more people per capita than any other state in the country. So you have people who are trying to excuse the history while also ignoring the realities that have been created today. And it I don't even know how to explain it because sometimes it just re it's really infuriating to me how we have disconnected ourselves from history in the oppression that happens today. But in New York, we don't have that exception in our constitution. That exception was explicitly taken out and replaced with something that I think is even more sinister in that it explicitly provides that people who are incarcerated will be working for no wages. And that to me is even more insidious because it really says, we know that we are devaluing your labor. We are specifically doing that. We are understanding that when we criminalize someone that we are condemning them to be an enslaved person in indentured servitude. And <clears throat> we are okay with that. And that is something that I think people have they shy away from it because it's an uncomfortable truth, but we have to confront the uncomfortable truths if we are going to have some type of reckoning. We cannot have a country that supposedly is united in these United States if we don't address that reckoning. Yeah, it's 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 even more insidious because it's not just, I mean, it's 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 significantly problematic. And and again, I go back to having having had a brother um, who was the co-defendant with 
Larry Davis in the 1980s. For anyone who has been a hip hop fan, probably knows of the story of Larry David and Ricardo Burgos. Ricardo Burgos is my brother. And, you know, my earliest memories, really, <laughs> as a child, is going from courtroom to courtroom, prison to prison across New York State to both be a part of my brother's trial and to visit him at the various prisons that he was at. And, and even my engagement in wanting to leave international affairs to kind of get back into racial justice, U.S. racial justice work. I've always been involved in racial justice work, but explicitly as my paid profession, as opposed to uh, volunteer, organizer, um, activist, um, I, the, the, the state sanction, if you will, killing of Khalid Browder through his forced, uh, you know, arrest and then incarceration and then the varied things that happened to him throughout his incarceration and then his inevitable suicide upon his release um, really viscerally affected me because my I'm from the Bronx, he's from the Bronx. My brother was a 16, 17-year-old who spent time at various prisons, including being jailed at Rikers Island and being in solitary confinement. I can just imagine the effects because I knew what it did to my brother and what it did to my nephew when he was, you know, grabbed up through stop and frisk in New York City um, and put into Rikers for nothing, right? Just just for being a Black Afro-Latino in the wrong place at the wrong time. And many, many, many times that happened and, and continued to happen. But it's not just the, 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 the indignity of it. It's not just the dehumanization. It's not just the kind of double hand of we abolish slavery except in this context. It's also the fact that the state of New York profits off of it, right? And it's, it's, it's that that I think is the most deplorable aspect of it for me. It's, it's of course, the idea that we still in 2022, um, I almost said 2021, we still in 2022 have people who are the state, the government of New York is placing an involuntary servitude and profiting off of that involuntary servitude. And I, I want to remind folks that former Governor Cuomo talked about during the pandemic when he was having those daily press briefings, for good or for worse, um, talked about the shortage in supply chains and talked about how New York State will be manufacturing hand sanitizer. And we've been able to manufacture this hand sanitizer. And little benotes to most people is that that hand sanitizer was made from prison labor across New York State, that the state was providing a good to be sold on the market that was being manufactured by involuntary forced labor. And this is a kind of clear issue because it's not only that the state leveraged forced labor to manufacture this hand sanitizer and other goods and services, but it's also the fact that they were also then denied access to that. So there's like continued layers of systemic Oppression, I just, I wanted to kind of get into what 13th Forward is, because I think we've already breached the idea that this bubble that we have about New York and the North being this kind of racial 
you know, paradise is, is a myth and that myth I hope has been destroyed. If not, we'll spend more episodes on this podcast, you know, allaying people of, of that disingenuous reality. But there are a group of folks in New York state that are working to try to upend that and to try to battle um, and fight towards ending New York state's exemption to the 13th amendment. And I'd be interested in hearing um, your kind of understanding of how this plays into the broader kind of prison industrial complex work, um, the quote unquote racial reckoning that we refuse to engage in and how this team of folks are trying to actively engage on upending this system in New York state. I want to point out that the state is actually profiting twice off of this incarcerated labor. So they're profiting off of the core craft budget line of just whatever goods and services are being used from incarcerated people's labor. But they're also profiting on a state level. When the census comes around, we just had a census, people who are incarcerated are counted in the districts in which they are incarcerated, which means that prison towns, towns that rely on prison labor are getting the money that should be sent to communities where people who are incarcerated actually live, where they have their families. And that has the effect of giving prison labor and prison towns an incentive to continue running, to continue incarcerating people, but it also takes out money from communities that could be spent in shops, that could be spent in stores, that could be spent in family units. Um, And so part of our campaign, we had a forum with formerly incarcerated people to determine what they wanted to see in a bill that ended forced labor to match their material conditions and their experiences to the legislation that we were passing. And a lot of what we heard was there are people who are going to prison who are the breadwinners for their family. So not only are they being taken away from their communities and the state is profiting off of them, but now their families have to fill the gap of what it looks like for their primary breadwinner to be away from home and then have to support that breadwinner to put money on their books for food, for socks, for underwear, for soap, for things like that. And I think that that is the systemic effect is of incarceration is often lost on people. Um, when you were talking about Khalif Browder, I think about the fact that you grew up in the same place, you look like him. And for a lot of people who grew up in those communities, the signal is we're going to snatch you, we're going to take you away, and nobody's going to care. And that has an enormous effect on a community's morale, a community's desire to be integrated into a social fabric, a community's ability to thrive and survive when people think that their lives don't matter. And when the state sends them the message that you are right, your life does not matter because it's just going to be used for cheap labor in the furtherance of this capitalistic mission. Um, And so I think the family and community effect of incarceration is something that's not discussed enough. And this is, we can get into how ACS plays into this and child protective services, like all types of systems that come together to oppress and surveil and incarcerate Black and Brown families. Um, But I think mainly the work of 13 Forward 
is to bring light an issue that forced labor is an, a huge issue in New York State. It is not the liberal bastion that people who maybe read NPR or, or read the New York Times or listen to NPR think that it is, but it's a huge issue. And it is more than just forcing people to work. It is taking away people people's dignity. It's taking away their choice. It's taking away their ability to sustain their families. It's cutting off their community ties. It's destabilizing their communities and their neighborhoods. And that is something that we really want to highlight in this campaign. Yeah, no, we're going to definitely get into the, I, I call them systems of oppression because they're multiple systems. I think you talk about the, the ways that the, and I, I hate to call it child protective services because that's not, that's not the way that we experienced it. And in some respects, it really mirrors and shadows the way that enslaved people were treated, right? So any black person at any moment could just be snatched and could be forced into servitude. Um, and that's very much what it was like growing up in New York City. I mean, it, it it didn't matter that you were actually culpable or not because you couldn't afford to pay bail. And it didn't matter that you couldn't afford to pay bail because you didn't have an attorney that would be a forceful advocate. And it didn't matter. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to say that public defenders are not forceful advocates because there are plenty of folks who work in legal aid offices who are public defenders who are doing their damnedest against the system that is fully resourced and they're not. And so I just want to put that caveat there because I think it's important not to disparage the really hardworking folks that are trying very hard to, to affirm justice and dignity for their clients. Um, but you're going up against an entire system. And this adversarial system that we have is not designed in a way that favors uh, communities of color um, in, in any meaningful way. And so whether you couldn't afford to make bail or you were snatched up in, into the system through the school to prison pipeline or through, you know, Association of Child Protective Services um, or a number of ways for you to get entrapped into the system, the, the outcome continues to be that if you are Black and, and increasingly if you are Brown, that you will be leveraged as a commodity for a capitalistic enterprise. And it's insidious because it's not just the way that the forced labor continues to manifest itself. It's insidious because there's a specific outcome of taking black and brown folk from downstate and bringing them upstate to build the economies of upstate communities. You know, I lived in Syracuse for 17 years and in central New York, we have Attica, right? And to go back to Corecraft for a moment, um, <clears throat> which is the company that New York State leverages to be able to engage in this trade um, for the state's profit of hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, this entity has an entire furniture line called, called the Attica Collection. You know, like if you went to public schools and probably private schools in New York State, including the state university system, you were benefiting from your desk or your chair or your furniture being built from forced labor, from prison labor. And I knew this as a kid because like we were told this, but I didn't really, I, like there's sometimes when you think it's like an urban legend, right? We're like, oh, our desks are made from prison labor and you don't really know what that means. You're just like, okay, yeah, like my 
history teacher said that and it it lives with you but then when you go to actually realize the way that these systems of oppression manifest themselves you're like no they really are like our entire furniture in our public school system was built by someone from my community who was snatched and forced into in servitude and it is insidious and deplorable uh, because of the way that these systems of oppression uh, systems of oppression attack black and brown communities in, in very visceral, horrific, damaging ways. And it's it's not just that you have a furniture line, it's also that the prison itself is run by the uh, incarcerated people, the people who are cooking the food, the people who are cleaning the, the prison, the entire, I mean, it's, it's called the prison industrial complex because truly it is an industrial complex. It is an economic institution and 13th Ford, I think, is one way to try to right a specific wrong. And I think it's a part of a broader ecosystem um, of, of trying to unravel and, and, and undo those kind of longstanding harms. But it's, it's insidious. And I, I just I know that we're close to time, but I, I would like to hear from you just how you see this work moving forward, right? I think I hope that we've helped to make the connection to the listeners between the way that this untelling of history, the way that alternative histories or really the oral histories of our communities um, have helped us to be able to be empowered and approach and navigate the world in ways that um, affirms our sense of confidence, but also affirms how we navigate and really get through these ecosystems of oppression, but how that untelling really helps to continue further this white supremacist enterprise. And in New York State, what that looks like is exampled by Corecraft, is exampled by the 13th you know, Amendment exemption. And I want to be clear to say 13th Amendment exemption codified in New York State's constitution, <laughs> right? Codified in the constitution. But what does this look like moving forward? How can folks who want to be involved get involved? What does that look like? And how do you envision that we continue despite this pushback, despite this backlash, white lash, whatever you call it, to this racial reckoning? Um, how do you envision us continuing to try to undo these systemic and structural ecosystems of oppression? First and foremost, I think it's really important to understand that we as a coalition, and I think that this is something that we understand as a coalition, and I want to um, shout out the great work of the steering committee with the New York Civil Liberties Union, Legal Aid Society, and Citizen Action, um, understanding that we our, our bill addresses a very small part of, as you say, the ecosystem. And when trying to defeat something as big of a behemoth as white supremacy in the United States, it's going to take a lot more than one bill. It's going to talk, take a lot more than many bills. Um, but this is just a small part that moves the needle forward. And going forward, I think I see the coalition growing and becoming more energized. We have a, a, a sponsor in the Senate, Senator Myrie. We have a sponsor in the Assembly, Assemblyman Epstein. And we want the masses of people who hear about this campaign, who want to get involved in this campaign. Really, we want to have more formerly incarcerated people, formerly incarcerated people's families, people who are directly impacted by the 
forced labor in New York state prisons to really show their voices and really be at the forefront of this movement and let their legislators know that this is an issue that really affects their communities and their families and something that moving forward is a really important issue for New York State. Um, but seeing our legislative victories as a journey and not an endpoint, um, speaking of the white lash, there's always going to be pushback. We saw that with the 2020 bail reform laws. Um, three months after they were instituted, they were rolled back for fear-mongering by the NYPD and the DAs. Um, so we want people to understand that this is a journey that is not going to end at passing the bill. This is something that is going to be ongoing with the fight against white supremacy, but we hope that our bill can address a small part of changing people's material conditions in order to really help them and their communities and center them and their voices. And I hope that this coalition continues to grow. If people are interested in getting to know the coalition, they can reach out to me. I am a smallwood at legal-aid.org. I would be happy to forward any inquiries to the coalition. Um, and we have meetings regularly. I will get you added to the listserv and people um, can get energized, join the coalition and really work to end forced prison labor in New York state. And I am hopeful and optimistic. I couldn't do racial justice work if I wasn't hopeful and optimistic about getting the wins that we we seek to get. Thank you so much, Ariel. I I am completely appreciative of you having taken time to be here today. I think you answered so many of the important questions that I know that our listeners really need to hear. Um, and and I, I think you really helped to put into context um, the current reality of, of, of this push for against critical race theory of, of push against educating people about our true history and the way that that helps to help facilitate um, the continuance of these systems and ecosystems of oppression. You have been listening to Yusuf Abdulkadir of Afrofutures and Ariel Smallwood Esquire of the Legal Aid Society. Ariel, thank you again and I hope that you have a great afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Afrofutures is produced by WAER Public Radio and Kevin Kloss. 